Uh, let me start out with a little exercise. Uh, exercise in interpretation. I'm going to read a paragraph from a novel that was a, it's a, an American novelist named Arthur Phillips. Uh, the book is titled Angelica, and the book was published in the last 20 years. I don't remember the publication date. Uh, I'm going to read the opening paragraph of the book, and I just want to talk about what we learn from this opening paragraph. This is the first paragraph of Arthur Phillips' Angelica. The burst of morning sunlight started the golden dust off the enfolded crimson drapery and drew fine black veins at the edges of the walnut brown sill. The casement wants repainting, she thought. The distant irregular trills of Angelica's uncertain fingers stumbling across the piano keys downstairs, the flowery aroma of the first loaves rising from the kitchen. From within this thick foliage of domestic safety, his coiled rage found her unprepared. I'll read it again. The burst of morning sunlight started the golden dust off the enfolded crimson drapery and drew fine black veins at the edges of the walnut brown sill. The casement wants repainting, she thought. The distant irregular trills of Angelica's uncertain fingers stumbling across the piano keys downstairs. The flowery aroma of the first loaves rising from the kitchen. From within this thick foliage of domestic safety, his coiled rage found her unprepared. Okay, some of the language might be, um, the syntax might be complicated, but um, can somebody tell me just generally what, what's the scene? What's happening? Yes. Yes. The burst of morning sunlight started the golden dust off the enfolded crimson drapery and drew the fine black and drew fine black veins at the edges of the walnut brown sill. The casement wants repainting, she thought. The distant irregular trills of Angelica's uncertain fingers stumbling across the piano keys downstairs. The flowery aroma of the first loaves rising from the kitchen. From within this thick foliage of domestic safety, his coiled rage found her unprepared. What time of day is it? We know that much. Morning. Morning. What's happening? She's playing piano. Somebody's playing the piano. Who is it? Okay. The casement is the uh, window. The window. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Needs right. Then some guy is probably like in the, like there with her and she like he's angry probably and she got scared something like that. Okay. Who do you suspect he is in relation to her? Her husband. 
Okay? Okay, what, what makes you think Angelica is a child? Okay. So she, she's at least a beginner on the piano, right? And you suspect she might be a child. She is, in fact, a child. Uh, and the woman, <laughs> the woman upstairs, we're, we're seeing this through the viewpoint of somebody who's, um, not, who's not Angelica, the woman who is, um, is a, uh, we're seeing, seeing this scene through her. Uh, it is her mother whose name is Constance. The man who bursts in is her husband. Okay. Right. What else can you tell me about this household from that first paragraph? The, did you have something? You, yeah. It's warm, comforting, it's cozy. Okay. It's a, it's a safe environment. So it's okay, good. Yeah, she feels... She's waking up in the morning. She's still in bed. And she's feeling the, the comfort of every, the household around her until he bursts in and, and spoils that, that feeling. Um, what does she smell? What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Okay, it's, it's the mistress of the house who's in bed upstairs. She's not doing the baking. That is, the, not mistress in the sense, the wife of the house is in bed. Now, mis, yeah, mistress as opposed to master of the house. Sorry, bad words, sorry. <laughs> a bad word usage. It's, it's the wife of the house who's upstairs. She's smelling baking, which means somebody else is doing it. What does that tell you about the household? Yeah, they, they, ha they, have a they have a baker. They have somebody that, uh, at least one person who does domestic chores, right? Okay. So they have a child. Um, they have, the, and the fact that they have somebody, she's somebody baking bread downstairs while she's still waking up upstairs means that they have a certain degree of status. They have enough status to have a domestic helper. Okay. Um, uh, what, when it says the, the casement wants repainting, she thought. The casement is the, uh, the, the frame around the, the, the window. That's what that refers to. An old house. Very good. And not as freshly, it's not fresh and up-to-date as it could be. So now we have something of a tension. They have domestic help, wealthy enough to do that. But the house is old and, you know, if they can, hi if they can hire a domestic cook, why can't they hire a painter to paint the casement? There's a little hint here that uh, the, the family's status is fairly high, but maybe slipping some. It may be a, a family that was once wealthier than it is now. And in fact, as you read further, that's, that's, the, that's the case. You know that as you go on. Uh, you know who he is by the end of the first page. You know who Angelica is. But the, the first paragraph is already giving you all those 
hinge. If you had to guess from the description of the room, uh, the way that the Arthur Phillips writes the paragraph, uh, what time period do you think we're, we're in? Do you have any guesses about that? What's that? You mean in the more not time of day, but uh, time in history? Does this sound does this sound, for example, like a um, something that happened in the 1990s? Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, piano in the home, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's good. The, the fact that there's a piano is also a sign of status, right? Uh, this family is a family that can afford to have its own piano. And, and not everybody can, even today. Uh, but... Uh, so the, 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 the story is set, I think, either right at the end of the 1800s or right at the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, and the, the language that Arthur Phillips uses, drapery, you know, curtains, you know, that's what we would use. Drapery, though, has an old-fashioned sound to it. Um, it's not the word that uh, we would use today, at least in American English, to describe the curtains in a window. It's crimson drapery, which makes it sound like it's wealthy. It's it's a, you know it's not just it's not just a uh, uh, just a screen. It's something dense and uh, well made and heavy, beautiful. Uh, and these are these are the adornments of a home of a wealthy family, uh, fairly wealthy family, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. I don't remember the exact date, but. Uh, it's 1800s, early 1900s is the time setting. Okay, so I, uh, what, the reason to go through this exercise is to highlight something that I think is extremely important for reading anything, and for re including reading the Bible. And that is that every writer gives us hints and clues about things that it doesn't explicitly tell us. At least uh, Arthur Phillips doesn't tell us immediately that Angelica is a child. But if we're reading carefully, we can already begin to suspect that Angelica is a child just from the first paragraph. Uh, we, we, he doesn't tell us you know, the social or economic status of the, fam uh, of the family, but we, can, we have clues and we can, again, develop theories and suspicions. As we read further, we might find out that those are wrong. Um, but uh, we get certain suspicions. The, what, what we've just been doing is trying to uh, figure out from what's written on the page answers to questions that the, that the paragraph doesn't actually answer. We're trying to read what is not written. Okay. Okay. Because the writer has written it in a way 
that implies certain things that he doesn't put down explicitly. Uh, every writer does that, uh, puts in little hints and clues, and the art of good reading is the art of being able to hear what is not said, not only to be able to, he able to hear what is said, but it's also being able to hear what is not said or not said explicitly. Let me give you a, an illustration of this from another, from another kind of uh, art form. I have a son who is a composer, a music composer, uh, and uh, when uh, we listen to music together at times, and he will say, uh, did you notice there where the, where, the, uh, where the trumpets came in? I love that part where the trumpets came in. And I say, trumpets? Didn't hear the trumpets come in? And he plays it again and says, there, there, there's the trumpet. Okay, uh, that's a trumpet. He, he can instantly hear something that I can't. He's got trained ears. He's got some natural musical gifts. But uh, it's, it's stuff, on the, stuff in the music, but he's noticing things in the music that I can't notice. Okay? Um, it's, it, and he recognizes kind of the overtones of the music that the music doesn't, uh, even things that the music isn't you know, not explicitly saying or playing, there are overtones and meanings to the music that are implied. And becoming a skilled reader of scripture involves doing that, okay? It involves recognizing things uh, that, uh, th this is just another way of talking about intertextuality, which you've been introduced to. Recognizing when a text says X, it means you, it intends you to be reminded of something else that is said over here, something was said over here and here and here, and to see how all those fit together and illumine the passage that you're looking at right in front of you. Uh, learning to do that well, learning to pick up the clues that the writer gives you is uh, part of the art and the skill and the wisdom of reading the Bible well. Um, I'll come back to that point in just a, just a few minutes, but let me back up some and talk a little bit about uh, this. This is now following your notes if you have them in front of you. Talk a little bit about uh, uh, God and the Bible and the relationship between God and the Bible. Uh, historically, there has been a, uh, the, ch the church and Christian theology has had uh, some difficulty uh, with grasping and uh, fully embracing the uh, written and spoken character of God's revelation. Uh, there's uh, uh, the, the fact that God reveals himself in language and in human language has uh, been seen as a problem to be solved uh, rather than something that is uh, just in the nature of the case. That language is treated as if it were a veil standing between us and God rather than language being a vehicle for God to unveil himself to us. Okay? When we talk to each other, uh, our language is, uh, it is a, an unveiling. Okay? Uh, if we're speaking truthfully and openly, uh, we just went through this exercise. Uh, you were introducing yourself to me and you were telling me things uh, about your diet, for example, alarming things about your diet that uh, you, you told me something about yourself. You disclosed something. The words that you say weren't a, a barrier to me getting to know something about you. 
I got to know something about you because you spoke to me. Okay. Uh, but there, is a, there has been a tendency in the church for language, and especially written language, to become a problem. How can God reveal himself through this crea- the created medium of a human language? Okay. Uh, and I think behind that, behind that question, behind that problem, is a, uh, an understanding of uh, material, the material world, an understanding of creation. Um, uh, in uh, much of Greek thought, uh, ma- the material world is, has a lesser reality than the, the spiritual world or uh, the world of ideas. Uh, matter, bodies, physical reality is uh, lesser. And truth can't really be embodied in physical forms. Truth is something that exists in a, uh, a non-physical realm. And the best we can hope for in the physical realm is some kind of uh, distant uh, symbol or sign of the truth that exists in a spiritual or realm of ideas. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that God created the world. God created the world as a, uh, a, as a James Jordan develops in his book Through New Eyes. He created the world as a revelation of his glory. Everything in the world speaks of God. The creation is not a a barrier between us and God. Creation is a revelation of God to us. God created our bodies uh, as part of the image of God. We are images of God, not just in our minds or in our hearts or in our uh, moral virtues, but we're the images of God in our physical person. Our physicality is somehow images and reveals something about God. Not that God is a physical being, but that God created physical beings that reveal him, that are truly his image. Okay. Um, so in, in the Bible, the fact that God speaks and reveals himself in speech is not, a, it's not treated as a problem. It's just part of, the, part of the way God designed the world. And in fact, it's who God is. God creates a world by speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks again, and he organizes the waters. He speaks again, and the ground sprouts up with plants. He speaks again, and the waters teem with fish, and so on and so on. God begins the world by speaking. And then at the beginning of the New Testament, or not the beginning of the New Testament, but the beginning of John's Gospel, we find that uh, God is not only speaking the world into existence, but God is eternally and necessarily himself, word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, The word that God spoke at the beginning of creation is Jesus, the Son, who is his agent for creating the world through the Spirit. Uh, Speech is not something that's secondary to God's being. God has always been a speaking God, and the word that God speaks eternally is identical to God himself. The word is God. Yes, sir. Good, good, very good question. Uh, it, it does mean that God acts in time. It doesn't mean that God is subjected to time. Now, let me uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on what I mean. Uh, I go back to the creation account. Uh, the first thing that God creates is light. And then he sets up light and darkness in a rhythm of evening and morning. And that makes one day. 
Once he has set that up, he starts operating in, in, in accord with that arrangement, with that rhythm. So he does something new on day two, something different on day three, something different on day four. He's not, uh, he's not subject to those, to time. He's not, he's not bound by time. But once he's created uh, this temporal rhythm, he acts in terms of the temporal, temporal rhythm. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make, he's, he's the Lord of time, he's the creator of time, but he has, he's created time in such a way that he can act and interact within time. So, uh, so God speaks, God is himself speech. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God writes also. He writes with his finger on the tablets. Uh, he inspires and directs uh, uh, prophets to write down his word. And just as the, the physical sound of a, a word is not a barrier to revelation, the physical, um, the physical prints and letters on a page is not a barrier to God revealing himself, but rather it's a vehicle for God to reveal himself. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and 17, I imagine you've talked about all scripture is God-breathed, and he's useful for uh, teaching reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. So the, what Paul says there is that scripture, the, the Greek word is, uh, I think it's plural, hygraphi, uh, the writings. Uh, the writings are breathed by God, breathed out by God. Um, he's not saying that the Ideas that were written down are breathed out by God. He's saying that God breathed and the product of his breath was a written text. Now that breath is mediated through human writers, right? So God inspires Jeremiah and Jeremiah writes something down. God directs and inspires Luke and Luke writes Luke and Acts and so on. Uh, but what gets on the page is what God has breathed out. And it's, it's a vehicle of revelation of God and his character and his works and not some kind of, not some kind of uh, barrier to understanding, uh, understanding God. So again, it's uh, uh, in the way that uh, we reveal ourselves in spoken language and also in written language, um, so also God reveals himself by uh, speaking and by writing. Okay. Um, so God, uh, the the problem the problem of uh, uh, of uh, spoken or linguistic language revelation is not a problem for the Bible. It's been made a problem, I think, because of other uh, other influences on Christian thought. Um, the other another uh, layer to this or dimension of this is the question about uh, the, the ability of God to speak in human languages and reveal Himself in the limits and with all the contingencies of human language, right? Um, Adam was a speaker as soon as he was created. I take Genesis 1 and 2 as uh, a record of what God actually did, uh, how he actually created the world and actually created Adam and Eve. And uh, at the end of Genesis 2, uh, Adam speaks the first human words when Eve is brought to him. So he's created, he's created as a speaker. 
Uh, he has, somehow has a linguistic capacity from the very beginning. But uh, languages develop. Hebrew was not some magical language that dropped from heaven. It developed over time. Uh, Greek is not some magical language that dropped from heaven. Uh, it also developed over time and was used by a lot of other, a lot of human beings before any of the New Testament was written. Uh, and so the question is, is it possible for God to use human language with all those contingencies and historical limits and the limits of expression? Is it possible for God to use that to reveal himself? Or uh, the, the, the alternative would be to think, well, to really know God, what we need to do is leap over verbal uh, written revelation. We need to find a way to get past the words on the page into some direct uh, encounter with God that transcends language. Okay, that's, and, and a lot of Christians have thought that way. The, the, the Bible is kind of a stepping stone for us to jump into a kind of relationship with God that's uh, super, uh, super, that is above or beyond uh, language, super linguistic. Um, but I don't think that's the biblical perspective. God reveals himself to us, uh, and God is uh, revealed himself to us in human language with all those limitations. Uh, and that's not a real problem because God is the creator of human beings. God is the one who orchestrates human history. Uh, God is not surprised by the development of Hebrew or Greek. Uh, God can commandeer as Lord. He can commandeer human language to say exactly what he wants it to say about himself because he's God. He's the Lord of human language and he's the Lord of hum, uh, linguistic development. And God is able to speak um, through human languages and genuinely, genuinely reveal himself. That doesn't mean that human language reveals everything that is possible to know about God. It doesn't mean that there aren't any limits to human language. All human languages have limits. But God has given us a truthful, accurate, uh, and sufficient revelation of who he is and what he does and what he will do in human language. Okay. And we have the record of that human language in Scripture. Uh, another layer of this whole question is the kind of language that God uses in Scripture. I'm going to speak about this for a few minutes, and then I will, uh, I will take, uh, we'll take a break, and uh, you can stretch and do whatever you need to do to, to, get, some, to get refreshed. Um, so another, another problem is the particular way that God has chosen to reveal himself. Um, the, the book of Genesis the foundational book of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, is largely a set of narratives, stories, uh, about uh, historical characters that uh, we would know virtually nothing about if they weren't written in scriptures. Okay. You get to the book of Exodus, and the first third of the book of Exodus is, again, story. It's a history of what God did in Egypt. Uh, and then, uh, after they get to Sinai, uh, the last third of the book of Exodus is a very detailed, in fact, two different very detailed descriptions of the tabernacle. Uh, very confusing uh, to try to sort through exactly what's being made and said and how it's being made. 
a lot of details on how it's done. And then you get to Leviticus, and you have seven chapters of Leviticus that are just giving uh, details about how to perform sacrificial rituals. Okay. You move on into later books of the Bible. Um, you have a massive book in the middle of the Bible that's poetry, song. Uh, you have the book of Proverbs, which is uh, wisdom literature that's spoken in uh, mostly in two and three line sayings, supposed to be easy to learn and memorize and uh, commit, to, uh, commit to your heart. Uh, there's a love song, the Song of Songs. They're prophets, but the prophets are speaking often in um, poetic forms. Um, what we don't find in the Old Testament at all is anything like what you find when you pick up a book of Christian theology. If you pick up, pick up a systematic theology text, I don't know, you've had a systematic theology course. Have you? What, what, what's the textbook that you use? Grudem? Yeah. Yeah, so you pick up Grudem, and he's speaking in a different idiom, different way of speaking about theology than the Bible does. Um, or, or you pick up John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And what Calvin is trying to do is to provide a summary, and I'm sure Grudem is too, trying to provide a summary of what the Bible teaches. But in providing the summary, it changes the form. Uh, my guess is, I, I, I don't know Grudem's um, uh, systematic theology very well, but my guess is there aren't any love songs in his book. Am I right? Um, is there any poetry? Does, does he ha have a chapter on uh, Christology that's a long narrative poem about Jesus? Okay. That would seem weird, you know, to have a theology text and suddenly there's a love song in the middle of it. But that's, what, that's true in the Bible. So the, there's a discrepancy, or appears to be a discrepancy between the way the Bible talks about God and the way theologians have often talked about God. A different in a different in the difference in the language that we use. <clears throat> I, I don't think that's a problem. Again, uh, a theologian like John Calvin thought of his institutes as a summary of biblical teaching that would guide people to understand what he'd said. He wrote, in addition to the institutes, he wrote a shelf full of biblical commentaries on virtually every book of the Bible. And that's where his actual thinking about God is most fully elaborated. It's in the commentaries on the Bible. The Institutes is a summary of those things that he's learned from the Bible. So it's a, it's a way of getting oriented to the Bible, not a substitute for the Bible. Uh, but there has been a tendency in some Christian theology to think that when you move from the kind of primitive, poetic, uh, everyday speech that you find in the Bible into something more systematic or philosophical or abstract, that that's actually an improvement. That you're somehow getting closer to the real truth of things if you aren't thinking, if you're not describing God in poetic terms or if you're not talking about stories about God and Israel. That that's actually, a, that's actually an advance in our understanding. Uh, and that I, I disagree with, I don't think that's correct. Um, as long as theologians see themselves as trying to provide guides and summaries of scripture, 
that's, that's a very useful thing. If they think of their theology as a kind of higher form of truth, that's not the case. The Bible reveals God in human speech using the kind of speech God chose to use. Let me put it this way. Um, uh, God is not, uh, when God speaks, as scripture shows it, when God speaks, he is not a philosopher. He doesn't talk like a philosopher. Nothing wrong with philosophy. It has a certain role and place in Christian thought. Uh, but God doesn't sound like that. Uh, God doesn't sound like a physicist or a mathematician. Uh, when God speaks in scripture, he sounds like a storyteller and like a poet. And when you get to the New Testament, we have the collection of letters in the New Testament. Uh, they are letters. You know, God, God, send, God speaks uh, with uh, direct, directives and corrections to his people. Uh, the letters in the New Testament, the letters of Paul, are more like what you find in, for example, Wayne Grudem's book, but they're not, they're not exactly the same because Paul is writing to particular churches, sometimes addressing particular problems in the church, and he's, uh, he's, uh, these are personalized communications from an apostle to the churches. They're not an effort to try to summarize everything in the Bible uh, as a whole. So even Paul doesn't actually doesn't uh, write exactly like a uh, a modern theologian might. Um, so uh, what we want to do when we when we look at Scripture is try to learn not just what Scripture says, but try to catch the way God says it and accept the way God says. So if God is going to reveal Himself in poetry, that means we have to learn how to read poetry well in order, to, in order to receive it. We need to learn how stories work, and particularly how biblical stories work, because they may work differently than other kinds of narratives and storytelling, because that's how God's revealed himself. Okay. Uh, the danger would be that we uh, find a story that's, uh, Josh has been talking about the quadriga, right? Y'all, right? Yes. Y'all have the quadriga committed to your memories. They're, you can't get, you couldn't, if somebody tried to brainwash you, you couldn't get the quadra out of your head. I'm hoping that's the case. So uh, it'd be, it would be a, a mistake to go to the Bible and think, what I'm looking for are just tropologies. I'm looking for moral direction. And I don't care if this is a narrative or poetry or something else. I want to just uh, take my I'm going to dip in and pull out whatever moral lessons I can get without, without looking at the, the, the form of the story or the form of the text and trying to get a sense of why it's put together the way it is and what that tells us about God. Okay. Tropologies are good. That is moral. You want, to, you want to be able to apply the Bible morally and you want to apply it to particular your particular, your, your own life and to the lives of people that you're serving and teaching. Uh, but you have to do that through the process of recognizing how the Bible is actually put together, how it actually reveals God to us. And again, uh, that's primarily in uh, forms of speech like stories, uh, like poetry, psalms, uh, prophetic, prophetic poems, and so on. Um, 